You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For August 21st, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nilder. As I sit down to record this introduction, the largest wildfire of the year so far in California has scorched 14,000 acres in Modoc County near the Oregon border. The fire underscores the extreme wildfire risk that has become a permanent threat to the state, even in a year in which heavy snow and rain in the winter and spring produced fewer wildfires than in recent years. But this fire is thought to have been caused by a vehicle probably a hot tailpipe coming into contact with some tall, dry grass, which is not the kind of risk that the state has any way or plan to fix. And that's a key point, which I'll return to in a moment. What the state must do for now is deal with the wildfire risk associated with power transmission lines and with the bankruptcy of its largest utility, PG&E. PG&E is now in probate with a flurry of judicial inquiries underway and competing proposals for restructuring the company being advanced by insurance companies, bondholders, and other investors. The company is bankrupt after it was found to be liable for $30 billion in damages for sparking some of the state's largest and most destructive wildfires in 2017 and 2018 and not taking adequate care to trim vegetation away from its transmission lines. But that's only its liabilities for those two years. There will be more damage damages assigned to the company in the future. And that's also just for PG&E. The other utilities in the state also have exposure to wildfire risk and liability. And the state is only just beginning to figure out how to deal with all these risks. Not just the risk of transmission lines sparking wildfires, but everything that sparks wildfires, from hot tailpipes to irresponsible campers to lightning, and how to manage that risk, from restructuring the finances and liabilities of its utilities, to how it operates its power grid, to how it must modify its building, zoning, and planning regulations, and even to how it insures property. And, as it turns out, some of the same solutions that will help the state manage its energy transition will also help it to keep the lights on in an era of climate change and unprecedented wildfire risk. To help us untangle this complex picture, we're very lucky to have with us today Dr. Michael Wera, the Director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program and a Senior Research Scholar at the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University. Not only is he a resident of Northern California who has worked with state regulators and been involved in assessing wildfire risk for years, he's also a member of the state-appointed Wildfire Commission in California. He has as intimate a view of the whole situation as anyone, and it's a real privilege to have him on the show. 
Then in the new segment of this episode, we'll note a new piece that explores the conditions that led to the wildfire tragedy in paradise. We'll review some fresh data on the extent of the wildfires that have raged across the Arctic Circle this year. We'll consider the implications of a massive ice melt in Greenland that happened in July. We'll observe the importance of a new analysis by Energy Transition Show alumnus Mark Lewis, which considers the energy equivalence of wind and solar versus oil used for transportation. And we'll summarize the results of a new analysis by another Energy Transition Show alumnus, Tim Buckley, and his colleagues at IEEFA, which finds that the largest investment fund in the world lost its investors a ton of cash over the past decade through its investments in fossil fuels. But first, our conversation with Michael Wera, recorded July 8th, 2019. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Michael, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoy the podcast, and it's an honor to be on your show. Oh, awesome. That's good to hear. So as a member of the state-appointed Wildfire Commission in California, you're one of the people trying to figure out how California can mitigate wildfire risk and how utilities, insurance companies, and the state itself, along with many others, can navigate this increasingly dangerous era of massive and massively destructive wildfires. And there are several categories of ways that are being considered to address the risk. One is changing land use and zoning laws to make buildings more fire resistant and limit building in areas that are prone to fires. So I think I'd like to start there. What are some of the ways that we can reduce the flammability of buildings? Well, there's some pretty well-known approaches to hardening buildings to wildfire. One of the simplest is actually just to build houses further apart. One of the biggest risks for a home are the homes that are adjacent to it, especially if they're within 30 feet of the structure. If your neighbor's house catches fire, the radiant heat from that can set your own house on fire, irrespective of whether you've created defensible space in terms of trees and other vegetation around your home. Mm. So that's one step. Another are just very simple things involving covering gutters, installing fine-grained mesh in the vents that vent attic space, also an asphalt roof and avoidance of highly flammable siding on buildings, you know, things like cedar shingles, for example, as mm, siding, mm. using double-paned or triple-paned windows that are more resistant to heat in a fire. In the Wildland Urban Interface in California, all those opportunities to harden homes have been a requirement since 2008 under California Building Code. But of course, most homes were not built between 2008 and the present. Many more homes, even in the wildland urban interface in California, were built prior to that time. And most of those homes don't come close to meeting these more stringent home hardening standards. Yeah. Don't put the building so close together and try not to have flammable surfaces on the siding and the roofing. Yeah, the key insight is to realize that most homes catch fire because embers from the wildfire blow against the home and then are trapped in some way or somehow manage to enter the home. And so if you can prevent that from happening and the building envelope is to some degree resistant to being ignited by those embers, the homes stand a much better chance of surviving. You know, this isn't to say that they'll always survive. In the Tubbs fire, for example, the homes that were built to the standard burned down anyway because the heat was so intense that it didn't matter hmm. what standard the homes were built. That's kind of the, the Cat 5 hurricane of wildfires. Right. On the other hand, in the campfire, those homes stood a much better chance of surviving relative to the older homes that didn't meet the standard. Gotcha. 
Okay. The other thing that it's not so much in the home, but that's a huge issue in Northern California is creation and maintenance of what is called defensible space around the home. And this just involves reducing the vegetation load, the amount of fuel there is to burn in the environment where people live. Right. And it's very labor intensive. It can be very expensive, particularly in places like the place where I live, Mill Valley, where basically these issues have been ignored for the better part of a hundred years. Yeah. But it's incredibly important because it means that even as a fire burns into a developed area, the intensity of the fire will decrease and you essentially turn the Cat 5 hurricane into a Cat 3 or a Cat 2 hurricane. And when that runs into a home that's been hardened, the home has a much better chance of surviving. And so there's kind of this two-part approach, one involving the fuels and the environment and the other involving the structures that are really important to improving resilience in Hmm. wildland urban interface areas. Interesting. Okay. So as for limiting building in fire-prone areas, which is something that I've advocated for a long time, I think it's an area where I think not only building and planning departments, but insurance companies have been slow to recognize these increasing risks associated with climate change and slow to take appropriate action. To me, it's no different from allowing homeowners to rebuild and reinsure homes in places that have been repeatedly wiped out by floods or hurricanes or not requiring new building codes that would make structures impervious to hurricanes or, for that matter, continuing to insure homes in places like Miami that are slowly succumbing to rising sea levels. So, you know, I mean, I realize that it's a very difficult sell politically for elected officials to say, sorry, you can't build here anymore. But isn't that the right thing to do, potentially, even with these wildfire risks? And isn't refusing to do it an invitation to further moral hazards since insured losses are ultimately socialized? So I would agree with you in terms of the issues surrounding new construction and especially new planned development in high hazard areas. I think it's, as someone I work with in the California legislature, Senator Bill Dodd says, you know, when you're in a hole, the first thing to do is stop digging, right? Mm -hmm. And we are definitely in a hole and we need to stop digging. And what that means is deciding to build the new housing that California urgently needs in safer places than we have built over the last 40 to 50 years. The big challenge in terms of insurability and sort of broader question around where people live is that we've built homes in these dangerous places for 40 to 50 years. It depends a little bit on kind of how you slice the data, but somewhere between a million and two and a half million out of the 12 million homes in California are subject to some form of elevated wildfire risk. And we know based on the climate science that that risk is going to increase over time. And so both the total number of homes that are exposed to risk and the level of risk they face is going to increase. The big challenge, I think, is how to avoid creating moral hazard for those homeowners. And at the same time, not destroy the largest economic asset that most families have, Mm -hmm. their home, and to avoid the kind of political backlash that we've seen when insurance premiums were moved in a risk-based, more actuarial direction in the National Flood Insurance Program. You may recall that the NFIP 
was moving in a direction of more risk-based pricing, and there was an immediate political backlash as premiums increased, and the very legislators that had imposed the changes in kind of a free market ideological bias stepped right in and repealed the rate increases. And we need to find a way in California to keep people paying the risks so that they make more appropriate choices, so they think twice about moving into one of these areas. But we, I think, need to walk this very fine line so that the backlash doesn't create a situation where the state is pushed into subsidizing the risk. Mm -hmm. And we're close to that in California. I mean, the insurance pricing in California lags increasing risks to a substantial degree. So the insurers can't raise prices as fast as they think they should in these very dangerous areas. Prices are still going up to insure homes, and many of the insurers are exiting. They're basically redlining zip codes that are high wildfire risk zip codes and either choosing not to write new business or even declining to renew existing insurance policies at the end of the year. And so it's a delicate process to manage, but I agree with you. I think the goal should be avoid moral hazard, avoid subsidizing dangerous choices. And we do that to some degree in California. The economics of development favor development in these riskier areas. And we need to be thoughtful about that and thoughtful about lowering barriers to development in the less risky areas in a very conscious way. And then hopefully try to hold the line as much as we can on the risk pricing that exists for homeowners so that you can make more informed decisions. So the housing, frankly, gets cheaper. You know, it's going to be less valuable to own a home where you know that you have to pay $5,000 a year in homeowner's insurance as opposed to $700 a year or $800 a year, which is what an urban policy would cost. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that all makes sense sort of in theory, but it feels to me like there just needs to be more teeth there, right? Like we need to either bring the red lines out a little farther so they're uh -huh. closer to that wildland interface and we're just saying you can't build out here or we need to change our underwriting standards in addition to just simply repricing the insurance because otherwise those losses are socialized you pay for it one way or the other you can pay for it in insurance premiums, or you can pay for it in insured losses. Right? But one way or the other, it circles back and you pay. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And uh, the other dynamic here is that the insurers themselves are getting very nervous. You know, They've suffered year-on-year -year losses that essentially wiped out their profits back to the year 2000 from yeah. the home insurance business in California. Yeah. That's what they say. It's a little bit hard to drill down into their numbers to fully understand this based on publicly available data, but it does appear that something like that is more or less true. They are very dependent on reinsurance, and the reinsurers have taken losses two years in a row yep. for a California wildfire. And if they take a third year of loss, they may decline to write coverage for California wildfire. And that could trigger a real home insurance crisis in California. And of course, if you can't get insurance for your home, then you, you can't, can't get a mortgage. have a mortgage. Right. You can't sell your house. And, yeah. and so it would be a, a really big economic crisis for the state. I mean, it could be a kind of recession triggering crisis. 
given how dependent the state's economy is on housing. So it's something to pay very close attention to. And and I agree. I think that we need to be doing all of these things. We need to be limiting building in dangerous places, maybe preventing building in dangerous places. It's especially hard to do that right now in California because you may have heard that we're in the middle of a giant housing crisis yeah. where even very high paying jobs in the Bay Area don't produce enough income to afford to live with any kind of reasonable standard right. in the region. And so restricting housing is just a really hard sell. Yeah. But it's something we probably need to do, at least in these dangerous places. Yeah. I mean, if I were an insurance company and I were looking at some of these houses that are located sort of right at that wildland interface, I might be thinking to myself, you know, I would just as soon buy them out and just remove this property than wait to see what kind of risks I get. Or maybe that the state needs to do something similar. But I don't want to get too far down this insurance hole. And I certainly hope that those people are represented on the commission that you're participating in. But it seems to me there's really a whole area here that needs to be explored. I think you're absolutely right, Chris. And my intuition, and the more that I've studied this problem, is that what looks like a utility wildfire problem is going to evolve into a home insurance crisis yep. over the next several years. And I think the evidence, it's a little bit sketchy at this point, what the evidence looks like for this year, but we are trending in that direction. In many high-risk areas, many homeowners are unable to obtain what's called admitted lines, homeowner's insurance coverage, which is kind of the normal homeowner's coverage, basically. And they have to either go to something called the FAIR plan, which is sort of insurance of last resort, which has very low coverage limits and lots of other undesirable attributes. Mm -hmm. Or they have to go to Lloyd's of London to get a very exotic insurance policy that this year for a typical Bay Area home might cost sixteen dollars to $17,000. Right. So it's a situation evolving toward an unsustainable outcome. And what yeah. can't be sustained ultimately won't be. The question is how. That's right. <laughs> well, when you got to go to Lloyd's, you know you're in a risky world. Yeah, right. So I'll pull back from that conversation any further. I guess I'm betraying my my provenance as the son of an insurance agent here. But anyway, <laughs> okay. So <laughs> another obvious strategy here is to change our forest management practices to reduce the amount of flammable fuel that's out there, as you mentioned a moment ago, just cutting back trees and brush, letting fires that start naturally burn instead of putting them out as quickly as possible and doing more prescribed burns. And this is an area where I also have a good deal of personal experience because I spent about a decade cutting back eucalyptus trees in Mill Valley where you live and burning the debris to reduce the fire risk because it's an area that is just at such an extreme fire risk and has so much eucalyptus around there. And once eucalyptus trees get started, there's really nothing you can do to stop them. They they create their own weather in the fire zone. There's no way to stop them. And they spread fire like crazy because the the leaves are shaped like little helicopter blades. And when the trees get hot, they don't just burn normally. They heat up internally and then explode and send fire everywhere. So there's nothing you can do to stop them once you get started. And that's why I spent so much effort trying to get rid of them. Unless maybe I'm all wrong and we should just be following Trump's advice to rake the forest. But anyway, do you see the Forest Service and other local fire agencies in California taking steps in this direction to really enforce that defensible space and to cut down on some of the load, especially of the eucalyptus trees around there? Well, 
I think they are doing more than they have in the past. And the funding, particularly for CAL FIRE, which is the state fire agency and forest management agency, was increased. It was doubled in 2017 and then doubled again in 2018. This year, we're spending about the same amount of money, about $250 million to increase the level of fuel treatment on forest lands in the state. I would say my bias is that we're not spending nearly enough money on mm-hmm. this issue. Yeah. We heard testimony in the Wildfire Commission from a number of CAL FIRE senior people, and they all said they have historically treated about 17,000 acres per year. This year, they're going to treat 33,000 acres. Their goal is to treat 500,000 acres per year. And they have about 15 million acres in the state that they think should receive some kind of fuels treatment and has not. And so, you know, if you just think about those numbers, we're orders of magnitude away from where we need to be in California in terms of fuels treatment. And I'm sure there are economies of scale with this, but the reality is it's a pretty labor intensive practice, as you know, quite personally. Mm. And so this is not going to be cheap. No, it takes a lot of labor. (laughs) Yeah. We probably need to be doing a lot more of it, probably spending a factor of 10 to 20 more. And also, I think, thinking very strategically about where we spend those dollars, because the reality is we're never going to treat 15 million acres. Right. And so we need to be using the best risk models that we have to figure out which acres we do treat so that they can have the biggest benefit for the state. Yeah. All right. Well, let's turn to electricity because this is probably the strategy with the most relevance to energy transition. With PG&E now in bankruptcy over its liability for some of the most destructive fires in California history, it's obvious that something must be done. And we shouldn't kid ourselves into thinking that only PG&E is exposed to such risks. I mean, they may be the largest utility in the state and the one with the most financial exposure, but surely all the other utilities in this state face substantial liability risks and will need similar solutions to whatever the answer is for PG&E. And we're talking about the present as well as the past, of course. I mean, a fallen PG&E power line caused a wildfire just two weeks before today when we're recording this interview on June 25th, which burned more than 2,500 acres in Monterey County. So before we get real deep into that, let's just start with the basic facts. What do we know about how utility operations cause some of these fires including the Valley Fire of 2015, the 17 major fires in 2017, and the Camp Fire that destroyed the town of Paradise and killed 85 people last year. So I think the reality is that as long as there have been overhead lines, those lines have set fires. And under California CPUC regulation, our utilities have to report on an annual basis any ignitions that occur and their cause. And so we have good statistics on this. And PG&E and Edison both set something like a couple hundred fires every year. PG&E a bit more than Edison, but they both are setting substantial numbers of fires. Wow, I didn't know it was that many. It is. And SEMPRA, the San Diego Gas and Electric, is owned by SEMPRA. SDG&E sets a much smaller number of fires, but they have a much higher degree of undergrounding Mm. in their system. Mm. And they have no trees essentially in their system because it's very dry desert terrain. So it's a different condition that is to some degree more favorable to this situation. But PG&E Edison set 
large numbers of fires. They always have. And it's never been a big deal. That's the reality, right? There there certainly are some early historic fires that were utility-caused and were very destructive. There was a fire in Berkeley in the 1920s that burned down a good chunk of North Berkeley that was utility-caused. But by and large, what has happened is that a small fire is set by, say, a transformer blowing up on a pole, and the fire department shows up and puts the fire out, and there's a quarter-acre wildfire. No big deal. What has changed and what was so destructive about the recent spate of fires is that the climatologic conditions in the state and the seasonal weather has changed to favor longer, hotter, drier falls so that the fuels in California that basically stop receiving any moisture around April 1st have an extra month or two to dry out. And when one of these utility-caused ignitions occurs on a windy day in October or November or December, that's when the most destructive wildfires have occurred in the year, they can cause much greater harm than they used to. Just to give an example, the Tubbs fire, which was a very destructive fire that occurred in 2017 and burned down a large urban neighborhood in Santa Rosa, burned down 5,000 homes. It burned its footprint in about five or six hours. A fire called the Hanley Fire, which burned the exact footprint as the Tubbs Fire, but in the 1960s and occurred at an earlier time of year, the fuel conditions were much more favorable to fire suppression. It burned the Tubbs Fire footprint in about four days. Hmm. And so the intensity of the fires is different and the ability to suppress them is very different. Yeah, And so utilities are having to rethink their operations in order to take account of this new reality. San Diego did this first. After fires in San Diego in 2007 that were utility-caused and extremely destructive, and they were caused primarily by interactions between the cable equipment that was hung below the high-voltage lines. The details don't matter, but those fires burned down large numbers of houses, caused billions of dollars in losses. And after that, SDG&E basically said, never again. And we're going to figure out how to operate our system in a way that's different than is traditional for investor-owned utilities really around the country to radically reduce our risk. Hmm. Part of that was developing much greater situational awareness of weather conditions around their lines so that they would know when those conditions became dangerous. And they did that by actually installing weather stations on the poles so that they would Hmm. have very precise information about wind speed and temperature. Very locational Um, specific. Yeah. Yes. They developed their own threat index to assess when their infrastructure might be in danger of causing a fire. And then they got approval from the Public Utility Commission to turn off their lines when conditions exceeded certain thresholds. This whole process took about five years. There was about, I think, a billion and a half dollars of investment in new infrastructure to enable this. It's been in place since 2012, and SDG&E has not had a major wildfire. And, and, and as I mentioned, they cause about an order of magnitude fewer ignitions 
than does PG&E or Edison. And of course, that is a function. You know, they're the smallest of the California utilities. So the system size is different. The situation is somewhat different. What's unique about the Northern California situation and what makes PG&E's challenges so unique are trees. Northern California is a beautiful forested place with many, many tall trees. And what caused most of the fires in the 2017 Napa-Sonoma fire siege, as they call it, was tree limbs breaking off of trees that were outside the utility easement that then blew into the wires, knocked the wires down or knocked conductors down. So if you think about that, I mean, it's one thing to say you have to trim the trees within 10 or 12 feet of the wires, which is code in California. It's another thing to say you have to look to the left and right as you walk the wires, as you walk the utility line easement, and look for any tree that might fail and fall into the wires. Right. That's particularly challenging if your wires are, say, 40 feet tall and the trees around the wires are 100 to 150 feet tall, which right. is a routine condition in California. Right, right. But that's the situation PG&E's in. So they'd have to look 30, 40 feet off the lines and see, is there any risk of a limb or a tree falling from that far away that could hit our lines. That's correct. And so that goes way beyond their easement, as you say, you know, the zone for which they're responsible. It involves a trespass, quite literally. I mean, it involves issues around property law that are problematic. Not only that, I mean, it would impel them to take responsibility for trees that are not on their property, right? Which is Mm -hmm. so problematic. And I'm glad that you've taken us to this point in the conversation because Before we move on, we should probably explain the concept of inverse condemnation, because that definitely comes into play here, right? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. 
And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In a big, long-form article published in July in California Sunday Magazine, journalist Mark Arax details how decades of greed, neglect, corruption, mismanagement, and bad politics, including many years of negligence on the part of PG&E, conspired to create a perfect storm of factors that led to the devastating fire that wiped out Paradise, California. He details how dangerous conditions had been accumulating in the area long before a live wire broke free from one of PG&E's aging metal transmission towers and touched off the deadliest wildfire in California history on November 8, 2018. I highly recommend the article to those who are interested in really understanding the many disparate dynamics that can add up to a wildfire tragedy in California. So if you log into our website, you can find the link to that story in the show notes. Item 2. Massive and unprecedented wildfires have raged in Siberia, causing Russia to declare a state of emergency in the region. 15 million hectares of forest are either burnt or burning. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. <laughs>